Verse 7, I want to deal with that of chapter 3. I don't think there's uh, much we need to say about that because some of this we've talked about, but there's one phrase that we do need to address before we leave this and move into what I want to talk about next from Peter's epistle. Uh, without going without going into any of the other uh, details of what we've been dealing with the last two weeks and a couple of the men I was riding up with in the elevator, I said, I'm really glad these two weeks are over. But, uh, but anyway, the focus of verse 7 is on the husband. And um, again, we have done uh, a number of these things. Live with your wife in an understanding way. We talked about that. Among other things, that means we need to be a student of our wives, that we seek to understand them in every one of their idiosyncrasies to be the servant uh, leader of our home that God wants us to be. Showing honor, that's the Greek word there is teme, it's a beautiful word, but to show honor uh, to her, as I said last week, um, I think I told you a couple stories of men I've dealt with over the years, but um, for a man to speak of his wife in a public situation of my old lady, that's not showing her honor. To, uh, we used to, to put it positively, you know, to hold her hand in public. That may or, may or may not be something that you, you do or are comfortable with doing. Every culture has uh, little anecdotal ways of, of showing honor to your wife. It's important to do that. My wife's birthday is today, and uh, well, what I'm telling you, I'm going to use an illustration. One of the ways uh, to honor Peggy is to make sure that my kids call her, my grandkid calls her, all, and I always let the relatives know the one thing Peggy always appreciates is a birthday call. So it's this morning she has been un- inundated with phone calls, <laughs> which is good. I mean, uh, you know, it's amazing how much you have to remind people to do that. But just little ways to honor your wife. But then Peter says something which has been the cause of enormous, enormous debate. To the woman as a weaker vessel. Now you certainly are alive in 2017. And being alive in 2017, realize how incendiary a phrase like the weaker vessel is. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, that is, that is a very difficult phrase to put on the table in 2017 with our secular, feministic, and I don't even like to use that term, but I don't know what else to do there, but it's misunderstood. I want to make two comments about it, and then if you have any questions, we'll talk about it. Otherwise, we're going to be done with this verse. But... In the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world, it was very, very common for a man to abuse his wife. Uh, We have countless records of Roman men, uh, what we would even, uh, very, very harsh, but beating their wives, uh, treating them with with total disrespect. And what Peter is doing here is he's reminding, this is the second thing, reminding us of something that's very central, that um, physically, I don't care how you look at it, I don't care what kind of studies are done, a woman is weaker physically than a man. That is not to say inferior or less important, it's just he's saying that because that's why you men 
in the Greco-Roman world take advantage of those women and you beat them and you harass them. That's what he's saying. It's not stating that they're inferior or it's, it's not intended to be demeaning. It's you, if you understand who she is, remember that's what's governing this. Seek to understand your wives, to honor your wives, because she is different. She's weaker physically. She cannot press as much as you can at the gym. She doesn't go hunting boar with a spear. <laughs> I was telling these guys, one of my students loves, these guys were hunting boar a couple of weeks ago in, in te- Texas, wasn't it? Or Oklahoma, Texas. And uh, what, this guy that I've known for a couple of years, I know his family, he's a really neat guy, but he's one of these really brave, courageous guys. That does, he's getting a spear for Christmas, and in February he's going hunting boar in Texas with a spear. You know, I just think, oh my goodness. I, I said, well, I'm going to pray for you now because I probably won't see you. In, in. <laughs> and this is how he envisions it. Uh, that he, he always hunt, he and his buddy have done this a couple of times. He, want, he envisions this, the boar running toward him and then taking his spear and impaling it. Into it. And I said, your friend will be standing immediately to next to you with his rifle pointed, right? Because, I mean, I just can't imagine doing that. I don't know why I'm saying all Oh, the weaker idea, yeah. So, I mean, but generally speaking, he's saying don't leverage the weakness as a means to abuse, to physically harm your wife, which was a very common thing in the ancient world. And we know that's what he's saying because look at the next um, clause because that, that gives you the reason since they are joint heirs with you in the grace of life. It isn't a matter of inferiority. It isn't a matter of she's not as equal as you, not a matter that she isn't as important to you. That's not his point, because after all, she's going to rule and reign with you as an equal, a joint heir with Christ. That is a remarkable promise. And it, I mean, in, in the ancient world, to even talk like that, and even today, if any of you have ever traveled to the Middle East, not so much in Israel, but outside of Israel, uh, you know that women are not regarded as equals to their to their husbands or to men, and of course that's part often of the Muslim culture. But it's actually it's it's endemic to the Arab culture, to the Arab Bedouin culture, and so it's still there today in in 2017. So, I I mean that's all I that's all I want to say about this. It that phrase weaker vessel is so misunderstood, and it is then leveraged in the discussions today, well, then you guys are just continuing to preach this inferiority, keep your women barefoot and pregnant, and that's all you're interested in. That is not what it's saying, because, again, it's in the whole context of everything we've talked about these last two weeks. Men and women, husbands and wives, are spiritually equal. Image of God, they're equal. Before the cross, they're equal. Joint heirs are equal. The issue is not quality. The issue is role responsibilities within the marriage. So that's all I have to say. I just want to make sure we covered that because we didn't get that done last week. Is, is that where uh, <clears throat> Christ admonishment, those who have ears to hear, let them hear, those who have that's eyes excellent. to see, let them yeah. see? Absolutely. And, and we couldn't expect perhaps those who really aren't seeking the truth of this word to even allow that to come into their minds. Yeah, I think, I mean, absolutely, you're, 
he did it years alone here, uh, uh, that wonderful phrase that's used by Jesus and used in the book of Revelation. It's so important to really, it's almost like this is family language, the family of God language. You've got to be in the family of God to really understand this. And it's like when I, I've often been in discussions like this with a, a person who doesn't know the Lord, and for whatever reasons, they bring up the doctrine of election and predestination. And I look at them and I say, no, look, I can't, I can't explain it to you the way it is detailed and forced in the Bible, but you know that's a family issue. You, for you to really understand this, you need to be in the family of God. Because it's, family, it's a family matter. It's, it's a part of the language we use in the family. And it's the, the language that describes the relationship of, of believers to all forms of authority, which is what Peter's really talking about here, if you remember that, what this whole section's about, is family stuff. Because if you're outside the family, you, you're going to push back so hard on this, and you'll, you'll be so defensive about this, you won't even allow the Spirit, this is how I've talked you won't even allow the Spirit to help you understand what it means. But come into the family. I can tell you how to come into the family. I mean, it's just a, because it is. Without the Lord, without the Holy Spirit, this is going to be the kind of teaching that one will be almost always misunderstood. And then number two, well, it's so defensive, and it's, it's almost apocalyptic for some women in this day and age to even consider the point that Peter's trying to make. Because it's a wonderful teaching. Honor your wife. Seek to understand your wife. She's a joint heir. And don't beat her. Which is what they were doing in the Greek Roman world. Don't leverage your physical strength to hammer her into submission. Which is so foreign, totally, to the servant leadership role of a husband that we've talked about quite a bit before. So, Okay. Could this be then, as in Genesis... Um, God created woman as a helpmate for Adam, and so then this uh, this is imploring the husband then to be a complement and be the helpmate oh, for yeah. the for the wife. Yeah, it's mutual. It's yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As we we, uh, I think I mentioned this last week. I, I know it's in the article there that we are to lead our we're lead we're to lead our families in holiness to heaven. That's one of the ways I've summarized this, and, and I believe it's in the articles there, but. I mean, that's just, you have to think about that. That is, a, that is an enormous privilege we have, but it's equally an enormous responsibility. It really is to lead our families, and of course, our wives, our children, grandchildren, in holiness to heaven. That's our role. So. Oh, thank you, Lord. We're done with this. <laughs> All right. Verses 8 through uh, 12 uh, in your. Um, Note material to page seven, the call to righteous living. What I want to, what I'd like to do is call this. It's the same teaching. I'm just using a bit of a different word. The virtues of righteousness. What is he called when it's a call to holy living? What are the virtues of holiness? What are the virtues? Do you know what virtue means? You know what I mean by that? What are the virtues? Yeah, the virtues of holiness of righteousness. What does it look like? And God says, I want you to be holy. What does that look like? What, what does that mean? Now, there's, a, there's so many ways you can approach this, and there's so many ways. Peter is not give, giving us an exhaustive treatment. You know what I mean by that? It's not an exhaustive treatment. But what it's, what it's saying is, 
This is God's desire for you. This is what righteousness and holiness looks like. This is what, these are the virtues that characterize this life. So please note, and I, I believe all of your translations, whatever, I use the ESV, whichever one you have. Finally, all of you. Now, the, the operative word there in that phrase is all. This applies to every believer. This isn't just a husband, the wife, the man, the woman, depending on the context, depending on the institution, whatever we're talking about. All of you, you all are called to this, regardless of any of the distinctive differences. And so what I'd like to do is read verses 8 and 9, and then we'll go back and take it apart, and then we'll, if, and I think we'll probably have time, then we'll look at this extended quotation Peter levels for us from Psalm 34 and talk about why does he use this psalm to, uh, to drive home his point. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. There are positive aspects of the virtues of righteousness. Verse 9 are the negatives that you want to avoid. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this or to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Okay, now there's really quite a bit there. And then when we're done with this, we'll, we'll go on. And Why does he quote from Psalm 34 here, which at first reading sounds a little bit unusual. All right, we've commented on finally the all of you. So the first one, and I, I'm, each one of these needs a lot of discussion and development, and I'll do as much of this as you want. But unity of mind, ESV translates it that way. Unity of, of mind. All right, now you you obviously, um, at least I think you wouldn't understand what unity means, but unity of mind. So finally, all of you, for all of you, this is what God wants to see, unity of mind. What do you mean by that? Agreement. Pardon me? Agreement. Ah, okay, agreement? My translation, so, I'm sorry. No, I was, so if... So what do you, if Christians disagree on anything, we got a problem. Oh, I, 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 I'm saying oh, so unfair to Woody, it's terrible. But I had to press that. You agree to disagree. Okay. We got to talk about this because does that... How about a believer? If we're believers. Okay. All right. Any other thoughts, Rob? The translation said like-minded. Okay, like-minded. Let's put that up here. So would you agree that a synonym for like-mindedness is agreement? I think in a certain sense. Okay. Like-mindedness perhaps implies more than agreement <coughs> on a single topic. Okay. So Christians should never disagree in a board meeting. You have a, you have a group of very astute, mature believers who love the Lord, are committed to the mission of the church, and are having a board meeting. So you pray for unity, which means you'll never have a board member disagree with another board member. How about the same mindset? Pardon me. The same outlook or same mindset. Okay, same mindset or same outlook. That's different from agreeing about a topic. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. If we're so, if we have the same outlook and same mindset, then we should not disagree. No. We should. You have another word in mind. <laughs> 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 well, see, what, the, the the good thing, and this is this is hard. I know it for uh, for guys especially. If this were a class of girls, I couldn't stop you from talking. But because it's not a terrible sexist statement. <laughs> But it's hard, it's hard because, but when you start thinking about this and try to, 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 what are some synonyms? What does he mean by this? That's good because it gets you really thinking. Because we do have to process this. Because I don't know about you men, and I'm sure you all, I mean, I've been in hundreds of meetings probably in my life. In all different organizations, I've been on a lot of boards and led organizations as well as Grace. And I mean, the one thing I can stipulate without any question is very God-honoring men and women disagree. Amen. I mean, they do. They disagree. And so you, we have to really think very carefully. <clears throat> honestly, we have to really think very carefully about what do we mean by unity, or not we, what does Paul, Peter mean by unity of mind? And it's so that we don't misunderstand what he's saying and therefore um, misunderstand in light of our expectations then. Because sometimes the most healthy thing for believers to do is agree to disagree on certain things. How about a common, now, I'm not talking about doctrinal issues. Common goal, maybe. Okay, common goals. Um, maybe. I don't know. Maybe not. Another word could be uh, concur, because in justices, they will agree to the, the decision, but the rationale or the reasoning to get to that same decision takes different paths. Okay, I mean, this, is, this is really good. We're getting closer. We're getting closer to what I... Because honestly, this is a very difficult concept. I, it really is. When you first, you know, oh, amen, yes, it's so spiritual, I agree. What does it really mean? Uh, well, agreement, same mindset, but, but you, you, keep, you keep hitting the reality as your mind slams into this wall. But I've been in many situations where Christians who love the Lord disagree. So what is it really saying to us? Joel? Well, I, I was just going to say, I mean, hopefully maybe you can disagree but still live in harmony. In other words, okay. Beating each other or okay. talking nasty about each other, you you do agree. It, is it conceivable? For example, you have a committee that's deciding on the, the the new carpeting in your renovated worship center. Do you anticipate that Christians are going to disagree on that? Yes. Yeah, I mean yes. <clears throat> so you have to you have if you're the leader of that committee, the chair of that committee, you have to think, okay, how am I going to handle this? How are we going to go about making decisions about the color of the carpet? Because I'm going to this meeting knowing that it's going to disagree. And so you have to think about that. So, Glenn, you were going to say something. So the, the common goals, I, I don't know. I kind of want to challenge that a little bit. Because I made a comment, but it's ringing in my head. You have, a, you have a Christian Democrat and you have a Christian Republican. And in our world, how we want to minister to people can be very, very different. Mm. With very, very different goals. Mm, absolutely. And actually, to even use the term Christian as an adjective mining 
a modifying Democrat among Republicans around this table is almost unheard of. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm trying to. That's supposed to be a joke, and nobody's getting it. I mean, the way things are in 2017 for many believers, it's absolutely inconceivable that you could ever have a Christian who is also a Democrat. Seriously, I mean, that's just kind of the way it is today. But now, I don't. I didn't. I don't want to get into politics because he brought it up. I'm just using that as no system. So, how we want to help the community can be very different with those two groups of people. Okay. And even the people who have those political differences who are serious about doing what Jesus wants us to do, to help the poor, feed the, you know, all those things that are very clearly taught in the Bible, that how we go about that is going to be, is going to be a little bit different. You know. So let's, let's think of it this way, okay? First of all, the term unity in the Bible is a very important word, and it, it's used of, of God, who is Trinity, three in one. So now, follow me here, because this is very consistent in how the New Testament presents this. You want to talk about how the church is to work, Ephesians chapter 4? You follow the Trinitarian idea of God, diversity in unity. Or if you want to put it the other way, unity and diversity. That's the Trinity. God is one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. You have diversity of persons in the unity of the Godhead. Then he, so the, you look at the local church, how's the local church to function? You have many spiritually gifted people who are different with all diverse aspects that they're bringing to the table of the local church that are all unified. Unified around what? Christ. And all we know about Christ. So Christ is, and again, when I say Jesus, I don't only mean the person of Jesus, I mean everything that Jesus did, everything he stands for, all of his attributes. You understand what I'm saying? But what's the basis of our unity? It's Jesus. But is there the anticipation of diversity within that unity? It's true in marriage. We talked about Ephesians chapter 5. And Paul concludes that discussion with an appeal to the Godhead to understand the dynamics of a marriage that's honoring to the Lord. So the idea of unity is established by our head, who is Jesus. He is the head of the body. But the understanding is there will be diversity in that unity. But when he says unity of mind, that, of course, is, our, is how we think. It's, I mean, these, this is a term that's not in the Bible, but it certainly fits. This is part of our worldview. How we think is kind of the, the key to how then we're going to act. Your thought light is very, very important in explaining how you live and how you act. That's why it's so important that we are concerned about what we put into our mind. But unity of mind, unity of how we think, would be, now if I can put it this way, the doctrine that all points to Jesus and everything we know about the Christian faith. So the unity of our mind is we have absolute agreement on all the key points of the Christian faith the Christian doctrine, or Christian theology. I mean, any one of those terms would work. Um, 
So that what, what Peter is appealing to is not you're going to agree about everything in life, but you will agree on the key doctrinal issues that point to our head and understanding everything about him, all the doctrine of theology, which is the basis of our unity. So in other words, unity of mind is focusing on the core of what we believe. That's the basis of our unity. So is that why you covered Jude before you did this? <laughs> yes. Actually, yes. That is one of the reasons why I put these three together. Now, I want to make sure you're with me because what follows, what follows is how then you live in unity of mind. We agree. We agree on all of these key things, which is the... I am often frustrated with some local churches because they don't teach doctrinal truth very much. And so you have people who really don't understand if somebody says, what, what are the key elements of the Christian faith? Can you define for me what God as Trinity means? Can you help me to understand how Jesus can both be fully God and fully man? They are questions that a believer should be able to answer. Now, don't look at me like I'm speaking German or something. But I'm, I'm serious about that. Our, the leaders of our local churches should be teaching people and helping them to make sure that they can intelligently say, yes, this is what I believe. There used to be, uh, and uh, sometimes in denominational uh, churches they still do this, but it used to be catechisms that you would use with young children, which if you've ever really spent any time with them, they are to help young children be able to learn the doctrinal truth of what they believe. The Westminster Catechism is one of my favorites, but I'm telling you, that's an old Puritan one. And you want to talk about depth and theology, good night. But that's one of the things why the one thing the Puritans were absolutely unified about was what they believed. I mean, that's, that, they, were, they were the most, well, anyway. But it's just, so that's what he's appealing. But then the rest of the virtues, the rest of the virtues deal with how do you relate to one another? If you're agreeing on the key elements of the faith, there's still the understanding you're going to disagree on a lot of things. I mean, you know, a lot of you are married or have been married. I mean, you know, when you start living, there's a difference between dating and living together. I mean, it really is. That's why, you know, so what the post-millennial or the post-modern millennial generation has decided, well, we're going to go through stages. We're going to date, and then we're going to live together for quite a long time, and then maybe we'll decide to get married. So, you know, we're trying it out for a while, which is... I think the average age for, for our guys and gals is 28 and 26. That's correct. That's correct. And they're having children, if they have children, having children much later in life, and so on. All right. Uh, did I say everything I wanted to say? Yeah, I think so. So... The expectation, this is really important, during the Reformation, which you know, we just celebrated Reformation Day on Tuesday, you did celebrate that, didn't you? <laughs> I don't know, Ed probably didn't, but some of the rest <laughs> of you might. But anyway, uh, during the Reformation, they, one of the things that the various reformers pushed for was unity on doctrine. 
and yet disagreement on a lot of other things. And one of the reformers came up with the word adiaphora. Now, I know that doesn't mean anything. It's from a Greek word. But adiaphora, what he meant by that is the things that are not central to our faith. We're going to disagree on some of those, and that's okay. That are not central to our, They're not disagreeing over who Christ and Trinity and the doctrine of salvation. That's not what they're disagreeing with. But they had, they had some disagreement about the mode of baptism. Do you dunk, do you sprinkle, or do you pour? In the Reformation, you find all three. I'm just using that as a maybe a silly example. But so that to me, that's that's spiritual maturity. When I see men and women who know the central issues of the faith and they agree with those. But some of the other things you you then begin to treat one another with sympathy, with brotherly love, with a tender heart. I want to talk that's a very important word there, and a humble mind. When you have unity of mind, when you have a clarity of understanding and agreement and and you're committed to Jesus Christ and everything about Jesus Christ, who's the head, you're going to be okay in a lot of the other areas of life if you follow these other virtues. It will cause us to have respect for the other. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I mean, again, those of you that are married or have been married, I mean, I've been married for 48 and a half years. And the, Peggy and I, <laughs> she just said that oh, two or three weeks ago. Honey, we're just going to have to agree to disagree on this one. I mean, there was no way we were going to reach agreement. It was an extremely innocuous, mundane thing. <clears throat> and I won't even explain what it was. But it, it was so, it was really, but we just, we were not seeing eye to eye. So we just both said, Peggy said it first. Okay, honey, we're just going to have to agree to disagree. Okay, that's good. And I, well, I'm, please don't miss I'm not trying to elevate myself here. I'm just saying that's part of this. It, if it's not a central issue of our doctrine and we disagree, that's okay. It's really okay. And it's, you know, it's to get to that point where it is okay. And so that's what flows from the rest of, these, of this teaching of Peter. If you have unity of mind, that's why that's first. Then there's sympathy. Um, what I don't know if I have to write that up here, but I guess I will in terms of completeness. But um, what what is uh, because we're translating a Greek term here, but that's probably. Do all of your translations have that? I think sympathy is pretty universal in the translation of that Greek term, but sympathy. Um, what comes to mind with the term sympathy? Empathy. Okay, empathy. That's a, that's a good word, uh, and it's part of empathy... As a big circle, a part of empathy is sympathy. But that, yeah, that fits. Okay. Ron? Compassion. Compassion. Understanding. Very much so. Similarity of thought. Okay. Regarding an issue. Oh, okay, okay. Um, What's the difference between 
sympathy and empathy. Do you know what in the word empathy? E M P. Empathy. You you put yourself in that person's place. Sympathy is is a more broad concept. Yeah, empathy is really it's a wonderful word, and it's it's a hard one to really be able to practice. But empathy is to that ability, that capacity to really put yourself in, in that person's shoes. I mean, you're really empathizing with them as they're going through a tragedy or a, something that's a, a painful or the loss of a job or I mean, all the many, many things that are a part of living in a fallen world. That ability to empathize where you truly, that's one of the, may I go down the bunny trail real quickly, that's one of the qualities of our Savior. Jesus can empathize with us. Hebrews chapter 2, the last verse of Hebrews 2 and the last verse of Hebrews 4, it teaches us that he, in all ways, Jesus now, is in all ways like us, yet without sin, and can identify with us. This has been translated, can empathize with us. So if you ask the question, does Jesus know what it's like to be tempted? Can he empathize with us? Not just sympathize with us as God, but can he empathize with us? And say to us, I have been in your shoes. Let's answer that question. Yes. So when we pray to Jesus and ask him to help us in a time of temptation, he knows what that's like. Does Jesus know what it's like to suffer? You can just go down a list. So Jesus can genuinely empathize with us. I can empathize with someone that's blind because I'm blind in my left eye. But I can't empathize with someone that has cancer. I can't empathize with someone that has a heart condition. I'm just using examples. I can sympathize with them. I can try to comfort and come alongside them. I can try to show them, one of you guys mentioned the word, show them the kind of compassion and comfort to get, help them get through this, but I can't empathize with them. All of us can empathize with one another. I, I'm pretty sure we can because we're men. But all of us can empathize with one another in a struggle with lust. I mean, I think, because, man, that's just, we struggle with that. Whereas a woman, many women do not particularly have that struggle, so they can sympathize, but they can't necessarily empathize. So sympathy is that kind of quality of life where I see this individual brother or sister in Christ um, as, 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 as important to God as because he sent his son to save him, but um, I want to come alongside. I want to help. I want comfort. And that's, that's kind of what Peter's talking about here. And it's a, it's, a wonderful, <laughs> it's a wonderful term. I hope I did a little bit of, a, of, a, of a, an explanation of sympathy and then brotherly love is, we get our word Philadelphia for that, from that. It's the, the word for love there is not agape, it's phileo. In Philadelphia, we get that. So brotherly love, um, what, is, what does that mean, brotherly love? In other words, I, I hope I'm not making too, but it, it is important that he doesn't, he doesn't use Agape here. The word for the love here is phileo. It's a 
you know, again, Philadelphia brother, but say, what's the difference between your love for your brother versus your love for your wife? What's the difference? Pardon me? What's the difference? I'm using the way that the Bible talks about it. When the Bible says your love for your wife is agape, agape, self-sacrificing, you know, self-emptying love for your wife, versus phileo, which is love for your brother. What's the difference? Did Christ bring that out when he asked Peter, do you love me? Oh, Fred, yes. Uh, he does. Uh, what Fred's talking about is in John 21, where Jesus, they're up on the North Shore of Galilee, Jesus made breakfast, and Peter and Jesus take a walk. And Jesus says to him, Peter, do you phileo me? Do you love me as a brother? No, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. That's not The first one is, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me in a self-sacrificing, self-emptying way? And the language of Peter's response is he's absolutely, he's absolutely destroyed by this because he remembers what? His denial. Three times. And so Peter is just taking, Lord, you know I phileo you. He doesn't use the word agape. And then Jesus asks him again, and then the third time, Jesus condescends and says, okay, Peter, do you then fill me? Do you really love me like that as a brother? Yes. So it's just that, that exchange is really an interesting exchange between Jesus and Peter. And Peter, I mean, it was just an incredibly important turning point in Peter's life because as he denied Jesus three times, Jesus gives him an opportunity to tell him he loves him three times, which is, of course, not coincidental. It's by design. But what I'm getting at is... <clears throat> In our relationship with other believers, sometimes as we are in our interpersonal relationship with them, unity of mind, it is really important to treat them as a brother or sister in Christ, where we have affection for them, we have concern for them, but I don't love them necessarily the same way I love my wife. That's what he's driving at where there's an affection, a concern, and a care for a brother or a sister in Christ, because obviously that is, is part of the local body of believers. And again, he's trying to get at how, how, does, how do you keep unity of where there's going to then be disagreement on a lot of other things? Well, through sympathy, through affection, and care, and respect, and dignity. And then he adds a tender heart. That I'm not totally pleased with that translation. I think a better translation would be a compassionate heart. That's probably <coughs> a more accurate translation. Now let's talk a little bit about that. So I'm going to use my translation, if you're all right with that. A compassionate heart. Oh, does it? Okay. Man, that's rare. NIV to Trump, that's the EFV. All of a sudden, I have more respect for the NIV. <clears throat> uh, um, first of all, heart. I know we've talked about that many times before in this, in this class, but 
Jesus says, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mind, the center of your intellect. Soul, the center of your emotion. Strength, your body. Heart, your will. The center of your intentionality. The the center of of your decision-making. The center of the core of who you are and why you do what you do. So when Peter says a compassionate heart, which I think, again, is a perhaps a little more accurate way to translate that. Um, what is he saying? What's compassion? Or here, as a, it's an ad- <coughs> adjective then, a heart that is evidence in compassion, or a compassionate heart. A heart that is exuding compassion. So what does that mean? This is hard when you have to think, isn't it? You just want me to tell you everything and you're just like a sponge instead of thinking. But usually when you think about it, 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 it makes a deeper impression on you. Is it understanding the other person's inner being and what they're communicating to you and you're identifying with it? Yes, I understand that. That's the best thing. A degree of understanding, if I can summarize what you're saying, a degree of understanding, Glenn? I cheat a little bit. I look up compassion. Oh, okay. So I don't care. I don't care. Use all the resources available to you. It's the verb of the sympathy, right? It's, it's wanting to alleviate what was wrong and why, why you felt sympathy for that. Okay, so you're, and I, I would be correct, compassion is connecting really with sympathy. They're... They're, they're uh, not interchangeable words, but they fit together in a large... You want to help fix it. You want to help alleviate what the issue is for you. Ah, that's good. Okay. It's like the Good Samaritan. Yeah. Yeah. Move to action. Yeah. Not just in the heart. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent illustration. Did you hear what, what Daryl said? The Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan's a perfect... He... He not only feels it, he acts. So a compassionate heart is one, it's, that's why heart is used there. It's an intentionality. You're, you're doing something with it. It's not just an emotion. It's an emotion that leads to, I want to, and I love that how, how Glenn defined it and how Daryl illustrated it, I want to try to alleviate this. I want to try to correct it. I want to try to help make this better, whatever it is. And so uh, in the example in, in, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, of the Good Samaritan, and it, it, you remember how extraordinary that is, because there's anyone who would not help a Jew along the road was a Samaritan. But the Levite goes by on the other side, goes by on the other side, but this Samaritan, he has compassion and he acts. So it's... Um, we agree in the unity of our mind, on, but our compassionate heart means we want to be part of the solution, not just part of the problem. We, we want our emotional feelings of sympathy and trying to identify with someone that's hurting or has a challenge or problem in their life and to help resolve it if we can. And Daryl brought up the perfect illustration of this, is the Good Samaritan. 
he didn't just say, well, I'm going to pray about it. Can I, oh, this is, this maybe will upset some of you, but I remember, I forget where I was, some conference or something, but Tony Campolo was one of the speakers. I, now, he's very sick now, and um, but he's an older man, but I don't know if you know who he is. He's kind of a, he was a very, he always would, whenever he would talk, he was always shocking you and throwing you off guard, and, and about 80% of the time I would disagree with some of the things he was saying, but he said when he was really, really good. He was at a meeting uh, at some church, and it was a church in, in, uh, in California, so it's a very affluent church. And it was a group of, of, of couples, and they were meeting together, and they asked him to come and speak on a particular topic. And they had a prayer time before, and they, they were praying about some, some difficult uh, poverty areas in, in Los Angeles, California. And we're going to pray about that and so on. And he started, the very first thing he said, you know, I really appreciate you praying, but you know what? The answer to that prayer is in this room. The answer to that prayer in this room is, have you considered taking an offering to help alleviate that problem? I can mention two or three organizations that are very effectively representing Christ in that particular area of Los Angeles. So you can help answer that prayer that he was saying. That's compassion. He was never asked to speak to that group again. <laughs> At least that's what he said. I don't know if that's true or not. But I, I'm not trying to make any of you upset or angry, but it's compassion is you see something and you want to help make it better. Whatever that means, you know, whatever the specifics are. And so I, I just love how, how Peter puts this. That's why I like rather... Uh, prefer compassionate rather than tender. Although tender is good too, but anyway, I saw a hand here. George. Compassion, I always go back to love. Absolutely. Love so, Christ, and that's compassion. Yes, I, I think compassion is a manifestation of love. Yeah, it's right, part right, of the right. outworking of love. You will see right, that. Yeah. A compassionate person is a loving person, which takes us back to the previous virtue. And then he ends. I like that. What? I, I, I like that example in that the shooting in Texas Sunday, you know, the, the political response is we'll keep you in our thoughts and prayers. <laughs> and, well, but, you know. Yeah, everybody says that. But, do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, instead of, you know, we're going to try to find some kind of a solution. I don't know what solution is, but uh, we need to go beyond just, we'll keep you in our thoughts and prayers. Yeah, I don't know enough yet about that, that young man. He obviously he was messed up in a lot of ways, had a lot of anger issues and all that, but yeah, it's you know, it, it is how do I respond to something like that as a Christian? You know, this was in a church. I, this I have a Bible class I teach on Sunday night, and I it was about a quarter after five. I pulled my phone out, just look at the headlines, and that was a headline. And at that time, they were saying I spent twenty-seven killed, twenty wounded, and I just said that to Peggy, and you just, oh my, it's just kind of overwhelming thought because there's been so many of these kinds of things over the last couple of months. And uh, how do you? Re- what's a compassionate response to something like that? 
Well, you know, in terms of helping the people or families, because so many were killed or victims and so on is one way. But then how to, that larger issue is, uh, my conviction is, uh, this may disturb some of you, but I believe very strongly the United States is a nation under judgment. I really believe that. And I think we're, that we are a nation under judgment. There are a lot of things happening in this nation um, that just God is trying to get this nation's attention. And I mean, you can, you know, we can explain the increased severity of hurricanes and, and the fires and all those things. And there, there is, in a sense, a natural explanation for those. But in, in all that's happening right now, our, our nation is churning. You know, the stock market's going through the roof. You know, there's prosperity and affluence. And I said to Peg, I was thinking about this an awful lot lately, and it just it reminds me a little bit of the northern kingdom of Israel. Because as you probably know, the kingdom, when the, the, the kingdom divided, the northern kingdom was always far wealthier and much more affluent than Judah. Because Judah didn't have anything. The only thing Judah had was Jerusalem, which was important. But, I mean, you know, the northern kingdom controlled the two international trade routes, incredible wealth. But which kingdom collapsed first? Which kingdom deteriorated more quickly? Which kingdom went into gross immorality and idolatry more quickly? So you had this facade of wealth and prosperity, and underneath it's rotting. Now, I don't want to be that dramatic with the United States, because there are so many positive. But at the same time, I would put it very bluntly, God is trying to get our nation's attention. And it isn't just about some of the culture war issues. It's much, much, much deeper than this. We still have buying, for some reason, we're still buying the lie. If we just elect the right people, everything's going to be fine. That's not the solution. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that isn't important. We're not concerned about it. But politics is not the solution to America's problem. What about a yeah, that's the the the. the, the the church and, and, and believers need to take very seriously their responsibility to represent Christ in the gospel, not to just vote. It's not, it's not that that's unimportant, but it's, it's like parents when their kids reach 11 saying, okay, I've done my job, and you take your kids to youth group, now you take it from here. I'm disengaged. Now that's a, maybe, but I mean, I know parents who are like that. We worked hard the first 11 years now. You take it from here. You take them to college. And you're kind of disengaged, you know, which and that's maybe a ridiculous example. But it's that same kind of mentality, and it's not what the, the Lord wants well, to see. Jim, since you brought up the subject, uh, oh. Daryl gives an example. Um, those We have many Christians, millions of Christians in the United States, so what's the call to action, to action for the Christian to actually do something about what you say if, in fact, we do agree with that? How can we do something about that as Christians to change this country and bring it closer to the cross of Christ and turn our, turn our lives toward God and, and Christ. How do we, what are some practical things every day that we around this table could be doing? 
Well, goodness me. Thanks, <laughs> Fred. I mean, that is a fantastic question, Fred. It really is. But I, I'm going to just share a couple personal things. This is not a template that fits everybody at all. But, but I do think, uh, I mean, I think it is very, very important that we are always checking our own personal life and our own personal priorities. Charles Finney, who was a great revivalist in the early 19th century, had a statement he always used in his meetings. Revival begins with a new act of obedience of the individual believer. Revi- another, way, another way of saying it, revival begins with me. And it's just that my walk with the Lord Jesus, and uh, you know that's why I, I, I do these classes. I have four of them. I do them because I want people to know the Word of God and then respond to the Word of God in obedience. And so it's just that you know, you're serious about your own walk with the Lord. I mean, Fred, if that's not, if that's not occurring, then anything else that's going to come is not as important. That's the most important thing, because revival does begin with the individual person. I think, secondly, it's, it's just important that that's why we pray this way, that we are seeking to be good representatives of Christ. Because you and I are not going to change the world. I mean, you, you know, you and I are not going to change the world. We're not going to change the country. But we can have an impact on individual people. You know, every, every person has to respond. So if we represent Jesus Christ well, then he will use our words and our lifestyle to draw others to himself. So I think that's important, that we are not only serious about our own walk, with the Lord, and that we're, we're, we're very serious about our faith, but also that we are serious about how we live because we represent Christ. And then thirdly, I think it's just to ask the Lord for opportunities to share about the Savior with individual people. Erwin McManus calls them the divine appointments that God gives you. And I mean, you're just always open to that. And then, so there are three very, but you know, that is exactly how it starts. It's one person transformed, sharing with others and others, and it just starts to multiply. In, in the New Testament, it's the ministry of multiplication. But then I think there are some larger issues that you have to start to decide on, on how you're going to do certain things. I think it matters on how you, you give your money away. I, you know, when I was president, I used to meet with lots and lots of people, and I used to always encourage them to have a strategy for their giving. In other words, you just don't give. I mean, and I hope you don't understand. I mean, you give because you are a, a, a genuine believer is a giving believer. You just, you give, you, 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 and so on. But to be a good steward means I have a strategy for that. I have a strategy of how I'm going to give to, you know, your church is the absolute priority, and whether you believe in tithing or however you process that, but that should be your priority. And I think then I would encourage as a part of that really strategic praying. Really strategic praying. Can you break that out? Um, <laughs> well, again, praying for yourself and your family and your your church and the people that you're close to in your church. But then the larger, uh, the Lord, I think to pray for our nation. We're instructed in the Bible to pray for our leaders. We're instructed in the Bible to, to pray for those in authority over us. And then to, to pray that, that God, that in God's desire to awaken this, this nation, that he would continue to do that. But in praying that, what will that mean? 
But he is God. I believe this with all my heart. I really do. God is trying to get the attention of this nation, the people in this nation. Things are in a mess. And I, I mean that, that. We have the facade of prosperity, which is real. There's no doubt about that. But underneath it are deteriorating families, neighborhoods. I mean, it is, it, and, and, you know, just what you saw, you have, and this is being expressed in all of these dysfunctional, very ugly family situations and these very angry young men, angry veterans. I mean, all of this, this is just seething underneath. And you just scratch it. Mark Twain in the late 19th century spoke of America as the Gilded Age. They were the great, you know, the Rockefellers and Vanderbilt. They were great wealth, but underneath it was real, real problems. And then the Lord graciously sent some revivals to Moody and others. And, and the same thing after World War II. Um, so, uh, is it hoping too much that we can be a part of that? No, but that's what I mean. It's, Fred, it's to have just, Lord, I want to be used by you to facilitate revival in my world which is, you know, your world, your home, your neighborhood, your church, that, you know, and then in the broader community. You're not going to pray and strategic giving. You may impact China to a degree. But it's also, Lord, I want to be the instrument of renewal. And if, if believers all across our country are praying that way, do you think God will answer that prayer? I mean, I, to me, yes, he's done it. So he, he, if you go back to ancient Judah, you go back to ancient Israel, you know, after they were divided, God sent revival. How did, who, who, through prophets, through his representatives. May I say a word? Uh, sure. I'm a, a missionary contractor. I was called back to Omaha to set up a business as a missionary. So I got into all kinds of home situations. I had a couple recently say, I don't know why the government doesn't have a committee or something to teach kids how to prepare for life outside of the family. I said, well, they already do. It's called parenting. <laughs> and these, these couples, both of them are working, stashing away money. This family had about a million dollars in investments. And their kids, they're well-educated, but they know nothing. They don't know the facts of life. And one of them I was supposed to counsel, because I'm a Christian, I can't make sense with this kid. And he's one of my grandkids, sorry to say. It's, it's a sad situation. Well, I mean, you, you just cited one little example of that, you know, the facade we have that you look underneath, you... you my daughter is in elementary education. She's now reading coordinator. And the issues for her, the biggest issues for her, is not the curriculum. It's not what it's the families from which these children come. And it's you know it is, and she's only been doing it for like six years. But it's so different today than it was twenty years ago. The building she's in, there's a kindergartner. These out-of-control little boy, they have called the police four times this year so far for that kindergartner. And you believe that. Now, to me, man, that's a symptom. 
of a very deep problem in this nation. And that's not just in one school in the West Side District in Omaha. Multiply that all through this country. Now, we've always had issues, but you're, I mean, you're right. God, God has an answer, not only the government, God has an answer to the problem of preparing kids for life. It is called parenting. And if you have single-parent families or thoroughly dysfunctional families, let's not be surprised at what we're starting to see coming into the workforce. You know, it's just, it's, it's reflecting. We are leaving and departing intentionally and willfully from God's design. And the farther we get, farther means distance, the farther we get from that, and so the answer is not electing the right people. It's, it's important, that is important stewardship we have as citizens. But we, we got to, okay, we got that done, now it's going to be fine. It is not going to be fine. That is only one little tiny piece of it. It's a much, much larger issue. So I just think it's important, for, and you asked that question, I started it because of the illustration I used, and it was all my fault, but it's now time to quit. So I'm sorry, I shouldn't have maybe, I don't even know what I said that got this Pandora's box open, but uh, it was my fault. Usually it's your fault, but today it was my fault. So Let me pray. Tomorrow I want to pick up with, uh, not tomorrow, uh, pick up with humility. We didn't get that done, so that's my fault. This is all my fault. I think it's mine, Jim. I have the question. All right, let me pray here. Lord, we're thankful for our time of study and reflection and conversation about the Word of God around our table today. Lord, if anything I said there at the end was of, not of your spirit, would you dismiss it from our minds, but cause us instead to focus on that which is truly of your Word. Certainly these qualities and virtues we've been discussing are so important. And Lord, it is, it is, is central to our mission as men who love you to, to pray for the revival of our nation. You are trying to get our attention, Lord. You really are. You're just trying to remind us that uh, we owe you everything and that it isn't a political problem or social problem or economic problem. It is fundamentally a spiritual problem. And so I pray for the children in our schools. I pray for the teachers. I pray, Lord, that um, we will be raising up a, a new generation of men and women who understand the centrality of the family take the responsibility of parenting very seriously, and take the responsibility of loving one another as husbands and wives and being sharing brotherly love with other believers as well as in our community. Lord, we are called to be your ambassadors. Jesus prayed, Father, do not send them out of the world, but send them into the world as you sent me into the world. So he leaves you, he, he, you leave us here, Lord, to be your ambassadors and your representatives. So, Lord, in all of our relationships, in what we do and what we say, Lord, help us to represent you. Help us to just be in our own little worlds, the agents of renewal, and we ask you to help us to do that. We love you, and we, we love your word. We want to, again, represent you well and enable us to do that in your son's name. Amen. See you next week.